Stigma-Free Vet Zone is brought to you by the Orban Foundation for Veterans. Learn more by visiting Orban Foundation at OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org. Donations help us continue to bring greater hope, understanding, resolution, and togetherness on issues of civilian readjustment for all military veterans and families. Please consider donating at OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org forward slash donate. As a thank you, you'll receive a free copy of the book Sold Out, Conquering the Experiences of War by Michael Orban. Receive your free copy by donating at OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org forward slash donate. He came home and said, I was driving home and I looked at a the train going by, he's across the track. He says, I was trying to decide if I drove into the train, if you could get insurance. We'd been married for 10 years. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. so I freaked out about that time. But truly, I think the whole time we were in school and then he got a, uh, accepted in medical school. So mm-hmm. there was always the his ability to bury himself in the work and in his schooling and and I was burying myself in mine. So I think we were we were two ships passing in the night when it came to that experience, really, until it all came apart. Welcome to the Stigma Free Vet Zone podcast. Our mission is to help veterans and their family members make the transition from the military to civilian life and culture. As best we can, we avoid stigmatizing names and terms. We feature conversations with those who have encountered unexpected reactions in their journey, including such things as nightmares, rage, and isolation. Veterans and family members in our segments share experiences that make them uniquely qualified to join the quest to identify, understand, and resolve these enormous life challenges. Thank you for choosing to make this journey with us. Here is today's segment. Hello, this is Bob Bach. Welcome to this installment of the Stigma Free Vet Zone podcast. Today, our guest is Carol Sprague. Carol is the wife of Chuck Sprague, former Vietnam veteran and retired VA psychiatrist. Carol is joining us from her home in Muskego, Wisconsin. Carol, thanks for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. Well, let's start out with how it is that you met Chuck and <laughs> when and where. I met Chuck at a goodbye picnic when I was 16 years old. I'd gone with a girlfriend to spy on her boyfriend who was cheating on her with another girl. And I was totally disgusted with that person and turned out that person was Chuck's best friend. And while I was sitting at a table muttering about what a terrible person Chuck's friend was, Chuck came over and sat down and started talking to me. And we chatted for a while and his best friend came over and said, oh, Chuck, hi. And he said, who's that girl? (laughs) (laughs) And so Ron, the person's name, came back up to me and my girlfriend, who we were leaving since we weren't having to spy anymore. And he said, Chuck Sprague, this is Carol Prescott. Carol Prescott, this is Chuck Sprague. Mm -hmm. And he walked off. (laughs) So (laughs) we that's how we met at this picnic. Chuck subsequently asked me to go to the goodbye dance. It was at the end of the year. It was a goodbye picnic. Mm -hmm. 
And I took him home to meet my parents because I said, I can't go to the dance with you until you meet my parents. Mm-hmm. Very traditional. Yeah, all very And formal. he said, okay. <laughs> yeah. So we went home and the first thing he said to my mother, the Baptist woman's daughter, was my mother said, oh, Chuck. I said, this is Chuck Sprague. We're going to go to the dance. She said, okay. And she said, how are you, Chuck? He says, oh, just bitching, thanks. <laughs> oh, gee. <laughs> <laughs> so it was an inauspicious start to a very long and tempestuous relationship. <laughs> Holy man. Well, needless to say, you both, you're so you're both from California. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I was an orange grower's daughter, and so was Chuck. His dad owned an orange grove as well, even though his dad was a surgeon. And my dad worked for the county of San Bernardino, but we both grew up on orange groves. And so we actually had that in common. And we were from Redlands, California, which was at that time a small town. It was maybe 30,000 people. And so everybody in town knew everybody. There was one high school. Mm-hmm. It was a small town, a nice mix in the high school because there was people of all colors. You know, we had Hispanics mm-hmm. and African-Americans and a lot of Air Force kids. There was an Air Force base in Redlands. And so we had a big mix of kids. So the high school dance, was this a kind of a love at first sight thing here? And did the relationship grow grow from there? Yeah, it grew off and on. We, it was four, we dated for four years off and on. We split up about every six weeks. We fought over many things, but in the end, uh, basically, I'm a person that at nine o'clock, I shut down. I'm dead. I need to go to bed. And Chuck, of course, is a night owl. So many of our fights happen. We'd go out to eat or go out to a a movie or whatever. And Chuck would want to continue the evening to go do something else. And I wanted to go home, go to sleep. So basically, when we had, who knows, I don't even remember what all we fought about, but we fought frequently. Over after four years, we I was in college and we get together every Christmas. We were we were like Romeo and Juliet in a way, star-crossed lovers. Although we we only were that at six weeks at a time. We date other people and then get back together again frequently at Christmas time. So when we finally decided to get married, I remember I called my my sister in San Francisco and said, "Rita, Rita, I'm getting married." And she said, "Oh, who are you marrying?" And I was outraged, simple <laughs> Chuck, of course. But it, by that time, she actually was a roommate with Chuck's older sister in San Francisco. And the two of them had agreed not to talk about our relationships because they never knew whether we were off or on. <laughs> it was love at first sight, but we also were very strong-willed people. And so it was not an easy relationship. Mm-hmm. We did. We always laugh. We always say we did all of our fighting before we got married. Mm-hmm. Chuck mentioned that you were married just prior to his going to Vietnam. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. We had been intimate for a long time, unbeknownst to anybody, because in 1960s, you didn't just sleep with your boyfriend. And we thought we were the only people who did that. Turned out later, <laughs> Chuck's, <laughs> turned out later, all of our friends were sleeping together, but nobody <laughs> was talking about it. <laughs> so when Chuck got his orders, his marching orders, he called me from Washington and D.C. where he was stationed in or Maryland, and he said, I'm going to Vietnam. And I said, oh, my God. And so we had two months to be together. We wanted to be together. We wanted to live together. And you didn't do that in 1968. Mm-hmm. At least not in Redlands, California, you didn't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so for all the wrong reasons, we decided to get married. And we did. And then it occurred to us later that I might be a widow 
that we wanted to spend those last two months together because we were very much in love. Every time we broke up, my mother used to say, I don't understand you guys. I don't, I know you love him. So being a tempestuous teenager, I used to say, well, then you marry him because I don't know that. Mm. I can't imagine what your feelings must have been when the day came that he actually got on the plane and left and, and flew off to Vietnam. I was angry at the government. My understanding of the Vietnam War at that point was pretty limited to a freshman in college's understanding. So I thought, and my friends all thought, that the Vietnam War was essentially there not to fight for democracy, but to fight for Standard Oil and Michelin Tire. And Chuck was a wonderful person. He wanted to do his his duty to the United States, but we weren't, he wasn't going to, in my opinion, to protect freedom or democracy. He was going there to stay alive. And so I was, I was very unhappy about it. I did the good old Redlands high school thing. I smiled and said goodbye and told him I loved him and, and hoped that he would be able to return. At that point in time, I really had no idea how dangerous being a medical corpsman would be. We had envisioned he'd be on a hospital ship. And then, of course, he told me, oh, no, I'm going to be stationed with the Marines in the bush. And so I was already, before we got married, I was already scheduled to go to France to school. So I decided to go on to to school in France while he was in Vietnam. So that made it a very strange experience because the French had already gotten out out of Vietnam. And when I met people from France, the first thing they wanted to know was, why was I in Vietnam? And so it was like, I'm not the United States government. (laughs) And it was a very weird time. My friends, before we went, when I'd tell people that Chuck was a medical corpsman, they'd say, oh, I'm so sorry. And they treated me like he was already dead. Oh, my. So it was a... A very odd time. Were you able to concentrate sufficiently on your studies or or was it very hard to do that? It was something I think out of sight, out of mind. I certainly worried about Chuck, but we had very little news in France about the United States war. We had more news in the newspapers about Nixon and his peace. He had peace talks in Paris and and more about the election. Chuck's mother always sent me clippings about the problems during the Chicago riots, during the Democratic Convention. There were terrible riots and the government police beating students. And so it was a very contentious time. And so his mother didn't send me clippings about the war. And I'm sure that was on purpose. So Mm -hmm. it was hard. I was very anxious. I I loved Chuck very much and I wanted him to be safe. I didn't know how to respond at age 20 to French people that wanted to know what our government was doing in Vietnam, because I frankly didn't know either. Kind of remarkable, isn't it? Or ironic that there was this remarkable upheaval that was happening in the United States. And at the same time, there must have been an upheaval happening inside of you, I would guess, emotionally. Absolutely. Well, and there was upheaval in France as well, because Mm -hmm. they were having student riots in France. So I was very fortunate when I got to France. I had a wonderful landlady who was quite liberal. And so we got to talk about World War II. She was Jewish and had been a member of the Maquis and had gone through some extraordinary experiences during World War II. And while I was traveling, what I noticed was there was a 
a lack of men in the ages of my father's generation. The World War II um, mm. men were kind of missing in Europe as I traveled in Europe. Oh. And so that was chilling. And being so far away, I only got Chuck's letters six weeks after they were written. By the time wow. they'd gone to the United States, I think it went to San Francisco and then it got forwarded to France and then went, came on to Paris to me. So that whole time, basically, I just knew that Chuck had been alive six weeks before. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was interesting. It was a hard time. However, I had I made some very good friends that were very supportive, and I was there to study, and I was in a different country. So in a way, I think it was fortunate mm-hmm. because I didn't have to hear the, the constant beating of the drums in the news cycle. Mm-hmm. How about when you returned from France? Uh, did that occur simultaneous to a time when Chuck was still in Vietnam? No, in fact, my mother called me and said Chuck got his school cut. I knew Chuck was going to, he had written to me and said, there's a potential I can get an early out school cut. And so we had planned a couple of different times to have R&R, but each time Chuck's replacement had gotten blown up or didn't arrive. And so Mm -hmm. we had canceled plans twice for R&R in Australia was where we had talked Mm -hmm. about going in letters. And sure. so in February, I think, or early March, my mother called me and said, Chuck got his school cut. Here's the ticket. Go pick it up. You're coming home. And I just said, oh, okay. Mm. Didn't think much about it. When I got picked up at the airport by Chuck's mom and dad and my parents, they sat me down and said, oh, by the way, Chuck was injured mm. and he's in Hawaii recovering. So that was a pretty big shock to they were trying to protect me by not telling me, but to sit down at dinner and have the whole family there when they announced that Chuck had been injured, it was it was kind of the same thing where they were trying to protect me. Mm-hmm. But I think it probably would have been better for somebody to just tell me what was going on. Gee, you must have had conflicting emotions here. I mean, were you angry at them or, or disappointed or... No, I, I don't think, I don't remember feeling angry. I remember feeling disappointed mm-hmm. that I hadn't been told and, and kind of embarrassed that mm-hmm. I had been this cheerful, perky person returning from France, thinking I was returning to my healthy husband who just mm-hmm. got his school cut, and then to find that he had been injured, the way he was injured, that he'd been medevaced out. And and then I couldn't understand at the time why the government hadn't contacted me. And of course, later on, Chuck said, well, I asked him not to. Right. <clears throat> and then later on, we did get, while Chuck was recovering in the hospital, I did get the telegram that went all the way to France and back. And all it said was, your husband has been wounded wow. <laughs> in Vietnam, and he's in the hospital in Long Beach. That was that. It was like cold, hard. And so I was glad that I hadn't gotten that mm-hmm. while I was in France. So tell us about the visit you had the first time now that he's, <laughs> he's back in Long Beach and you go to see him. Our uh, Heathcliff on the Moors reunion where I came floating in with my long hair and <laughs> hugged him gratefully. I was very excited to see him. I'd stayed with it. His sister had just had a, a baby that was about mm, four or five months old that was quite colicky. And so I'd been up most of the night and, and his sister actually was suffering depression at the time. So I was trying to help as much as I could with the baby. Finally, I got permission to go visit Chuck in the hospital. 
And so I was very excited and ready for the Heathcliff moment where we would embrace lovingly after nine months apart and him at war and me in France. And and so I walked into the ward and I looked around. They told me which ward and I looked at the six beds on my left. And I looked at the six beds on my right and I didn't see him. So I decided I was in the wrong room. And as I turned to leave, this little teeny tiny voice said, Carol. <laughs> and I looked over and I don't know if Chuck, I, I missed a good part of your first conversation with Chuck. He left, he was 240 pounds. He came back at 150. And so I just looked at him and he'd grown the mustache and hair was red, which I didn't remember because he always wore it short. (laughs) And so here was this little tiny shell-shocked man (laughs) kind of buried in the the covers. And I was like, Chuck. And then, of course, I was trying not to go, oh, my God, you look awful. <laughs> so I was trying to keep a brave face, and I, I, we greeted, and, and things worked out. That was actually the best blessing of all, I think, of the, his homecoming, was that we didn't just get off a plane and go home. Mm-hmm and have parties. He was there in a, in a ward with other vets, and then he had some surgery, and then they put him in a different ward with some really outlandish Marines, and they were really fun. And so when I visited with Chuck the first, I don't know, week or two, we were like having a Marine party. So obviously <laughs> we couldn't have any time alone to have wild monkey sex or anything. But at that point, he was pretty broken. So he had that 100-yard stare. And so I knew things were different. But Did that scare you? At that time, yeah. It was, it was just weird because with the situation with me living at his sister's with the crying baby, and Chuck being coming out of the time, he really never talked about what happened and really didn't talk about Vietnam for about 10 years. Let me ask this. Did anyone from the Navy in this case, or the government for that matter, reach out to you and say, your husband is home now. Here's what you might expect in terms of recovery or his reaction to experiences he had. Was there any outreach whatsoever? None. None so ever. We took him from the hospital to our apartment that we'd rented and that his, yeah, my folks actually had gone with his mom and dad and got an apartment near school. And we went home and that was it. In 1969, PTSD wasn't even put in the DSM-3, I think, until 1980. And so no one knew about PTSD. Nobody knew I guess they knew about people coming home, but no, no one ever contacted me ever other than one, the one telegram that told me he'd been injured and that I could go see him. Did you feel alone? I'm wondering what your reaction was to this at that time. At that time, it was all pretty busy. We were mm-hmm. getting ready to go to school. We were. I was traveling back and forth from Los Angeles to Long Beach, and I was working to get things together. I was setting up school. I was getting back from France. And so I had to set up my school. And I think both of us just kind of put the whole experience on the shelf. Mm -hmm. We really didn't talk about it. Chuck was still injured when we went home. He was still doing rehab. And then we started school. And so Chuck basically buried himself in his studies. 
at that point in time, I was planning to be a French teacher, so I was getting ready to do student teaching and, and finishing up my work. And then I was starting graduate school to get a master's in French literature. And Chuck came home and he said, originally we had planned to have this Ozzie and Harriet life <laughs> where we would live in Redlands, have three children. He'd be a university professor. I'd be a French teacher at the high school. And we would just live the Ozzie and Harriet life. Mm-hmm. Well, of course, when he came back, he said, I don't want to be a professor. I want, I'm going to be a doctor. Huh. And of course I said, oh, <laughs> that's a big deal. Because he had like... He had no math in his background. (laughs) So he started back in junior college during that one summer, that first summer that we were home. He started back in junior college taking algebra. So we all just were involved in school. Mm -hmm. And he did have nightmares. He did... There was an earthquake at one point where he 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 had told me stories about when there was bombing. He would dig a hole, and he did say, I always thought of you. I wanted to dig that hole, so I'd come home to you. Hmm. So um, the first night we had an earthquake, (laughs) I was sound asleep in bed, and next thing I knew, Chuck was shoving me over on the side of the bed, jumping on top of me to protect me from the bombs. <laughs> so, of course, at that point, I said, um, Chuck, this is an earthquake. We're not in Vietnam. You, We better get outside. <laughs> you know? But that was about, you know, when people talk about the PTSD, and it was quite different, I think, for some Vietnam vets who essentially, he didn't go over with the guys he trained with necessarily. He wasn't in the same unit. He essentially was plucked out of the hospital in Maryland and dumped in Vietnam. And so I was, when we got married there, I didn't know anybody else that was married to a veteran. I was really on my own. But I was, I think probably just, I thought, well, this, we just need to get through this. And then he'll come home and we'll be fine and we'll go on with our Ozzie and Harriet life, which, of course, didn't happen. (laughs) Did you appreciate the fact that in these subsequent months he did share stories with you? I did. And actually, I wanted him to share more. Mostly what we found, because we were were attending the college that I was already had attended for two years. And so my, all my French major people and humanities majors people just took him in. They had only known him as Carol's boyfriend from afar when I was a freshman and sophomore because we were broken up a good part of that time. Actually, he went to a different, he went to Santa Cruz and University of Redlands. And I was in Riverside, but whenever they saw him, they liked him. They thought he was a neat guy, and but they didn't know him. So he pretty much put on a good show to them. He was, we had some, you know, we'd have intimate friends over, you know, six or seven people with an intimate party in college days. And, and we would play cards and drink and have, have fun. But Chuck really never talked about his experiences around them. And I think the one thing that I noticed right away was most of my friends would say, oh, you were in Vietnam. What was that like? Mm-hmm. I mean, <laughs> it's like, 
it was a question of sort of like, how are you? I'm fine. Goodbye. And so Chuck never opened up about it. I actually never knew that the person that, you know, when he told you the story that he was medevaced, he had gone down a hill to help somebody who he'd already told not to go down the hill because there were another company coming up behind them on the trail. And he heard the other company coming and he went up to to wave and say, hey, we're friendly, don't shoot. And a mortar lobbed over and killed the guy that he was trying to rescue Mm -hmm. and blew him up into the air where he landed. And next thing he knew, he was uh, in a helicopter (laughs) being thrown away. So really thinking back on it, he didn't talk about it. And a lot of us didn't ask. Mm -hmm. And when I asked, he basically, he'd tell one or two little stories, but Nothing about the whole experience until 1980 after his dad died and he's, and the flare-up happened. Then he came home and said, I was driving home and I looked at a, the train going by. He's crossed the track. And he said, I was trying to decide if I drove into the train, if you could get insurance. We'd been married for 10 years. <laughs> it's like, oh. Mm-hmm. So I freaked out about that time, but truly, I think the whole time we were in school, and then he got a, uh, accepted in medical school. So mm-hmm. there was always the his ability to bury himself in the work and in his schooling, and and I was burying myself in mine. So I think we were we were two ships passing in the night when it came to that experience, really until it all came apart. Yeah, after this 10-year period, it sounds as if there was a bit of a reckoning here. And what happened from that point going forward? Well, Chuck went to a psychiatrist. at that When Chuck's dad died, we had not been in a church for the 10 years we were back. Mm-hmm. And when Chuck's dad died, his the, the home church where his parents lived in Redlands, came in and we realized we were planning for the relatives to come from out of state and from San Diego and all over. And we realized 120 people were going to show up at our house. His dad died on a weekend, I think, and the the funeral was going to be the following weekend. And we realized there were probably 120 people, all of whom we loved and loved Chuck's dad dearly, going to show up at the house for the funeral and the after. So we were in the panic, and about that time, the phone rang, and the ladies from the home church that his mom and dad belonged to called and said, we'll take care of the reception, and we'll send somebody to do all the food and all the dishes. We'll bring all of that, and we were stunned um, and very, very grateful. When Chuck and I got back to, we were living in Utah at the time, we decided that we couldn't really pay that church back for all the kindness but that we needed to give back. Mm-hmm. And so we we went to the little congregational church down the road, and it that just turned out to be just the most fabulous Holy Spirit experience ever. We were welcomed. It was a church in Utah that Protestant churches were few and far between, and it was a wonderful congregation of everything from very conservative Christians all the way to Unitarians, very liberal Unitarians, in a church of 400 people, and they embraced us. And so in that time period, we got to know them and love them. And at the reckoning came when Chuck said, I just can't stand staying at the university anymore. And we'd been there five years. We owned a home. I had a job that I loved in the 
computer graphics company, which was a very new field at the time, and right. I was taking computer classes, etc. So, <clears throat> so he found a new job as a director of a rehab program. He was in rehab medicine at the time. And so we moved, sold our home, and went off. And Or actually, we rented our home. And after a year, Chuck said, I hate this. I don't want to stay here. And he got a, an offer from his friend from medical school to be in private practice in Northridge, California. So we packed up and we moved after the year to Northridge. And he went. And the first dinner we had was with the senior partner of this partnership. And he took us to dinner and he leaned forward and he said, Carol, we're going to make you rich. <laughs> and of course I'm going, I don't want to be rich. I want Chuck back. Yeah. <laughs> so he's been working 24 seven for the last 10 years. Could, could we please just have some time? So we knew right away that this was not a good match, but we tried to say it was. So Chuck worked for about maybe a year less in that job, and then he started having visions of driving into a train, and he did tell me about that by this time. Along the way, people we met, especially one pastor when we were in Stockton for one year, he the pastor was in the reserve, and he was very interested in military history, and he was like Chuck's clone as far as a personality he was an angry recovering alcoholic, and Chuck was an angry vet who would have liked to have been an alcoholic, but I wouldn't stand for it. <laughs> and those people in our lives that came along really helped us through. Mm-hmm. So it was just by God's grace that we, we met these people through our church. And then eventually Northridge turned out bad. Chuck being in private practice wasn't a good fit. And so he came home one day and said, I want to quit medicine. Oh, he went to a psychiatrist. (laughs) And the psychiatrist said, I'd like to speak to your wife. And the psychiatrist, I said, fine. And I went and he said, well, you know, Chuck tells me you don't like anger, which that was always a contention before we ever understood what what PTSD was and, Mm -hmm. and, and depression. Chuck was very angry. He was always yelling about something or he was, he'd get really mad about little tiny things. Somebody would follow him on his bumper and it would be a big deal. And I just basically just said, you know, this is no big deal. Knock it off. Well, years later I became a counselor and I realized that was probably the worst thing I could ever say. But at the time I didn't know what was going on. So essentially, the psychiatrist he was seeing said, well, Carol, it's your fault that Chuck's angry. Oh, my. I said, what? (laughs) Excuse me? (laughs) And so I said, how is that? And he said, well, you should let him be angry. And I thought, you haven't seen this anger. This is Mm -hmm. not a good anger. And so he said, no, it's it's your fault. You need to let Chuck be angry. And I'd always heard that uh, wives could sabotage psychiatric treatment. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to do that, so I backed off. I said, okay. So then Chuck came home and said, I want to quit medicine. Of course, we still had school loans from medical Mm -hmm. school at the time. (laughs) So I said, oh, okay. (laughs) What does the psychiatrist say? He says, well, he said it's a professional suicide. Mm. And it's either professional suicide or I'm going to kill myself. So I said, well, I think we better move back to Utah where we own a house. We had saved a bunch of money because he was paid very well. 
at the in private practice, and we'd saved up to go with our old pastor to Omaramagal in that year. It was its 10-year, 1984 or mm-hmm. 1982, I think. Anyway, and I'd saved up enough to pay for our trip and a friend's trip who was a pastor who had no money, and so I was we were going to donate that money to the church. So we essentially, I essentially just said, okay, cancel the trip. We paid for our friend's trip, and we went home and we're planning to live on the money in Utah while he quit medicine and figured out what he wanted to do. And so I got a job in Utah right away, and it was quite stressful working for an American savings and loan selling jumbo CDs when I was running the office. And so Chuck was home reading Henri Nouwen and uh, a lot of books about philosophy and religion, and he also ran the stewardship committee, I think, to raise money for the church. He was a housewife. He was a good housewife. Mm-hmm. And he actually set up all my files. He came to the new office we were setting up. He set up all the files. Very compulsive. <laughs> and really, PTSD, he had no stress at that mm-hmm. point in time. That, And he did find a, I think he found a psychiatrist he liked in Utah that was doing good work. And, and finally, I got sick and was in the hospital and couldn't work. And so basically he nursed me back to health mm. for four months and we lived on the money that we'd saved to go to, <laughs> to, to go to the Holy Land and go to Omaramagal. So it all worked out very well. And by December I said, you know, Chuck, we're almost out of money. <laughs> so he said, well, I've decided I'd like to go into psychiatry, but there's some openings in rehab too. So he got in the car. I had just gotten out of the hospital, had had surgery. And he drove off to Loma Linda, California, to interview for a psych residency. And he continued on up to Roseburg, I think, to interview for a job in Roseburg in a psych residence. Or I don't, yeah, I was in a rehab residence. I don't know. Anyway, this is we've moved 24 times and lived in six states, so <laughs> it's like. Bob, I really don't know the exact uh, That's quite all right. Time, yeah. That's okay. Let me ask this. During the time that you would move from city to city, would, did that help at all in the relationship in terms of the uh, stresses that uh, Chuck was experiencing, et cetera? I think it gave him a mission. Moving, it gave him hope. He was on his way out. He was in the helicopter leaving Vietnam again. And so I think there was a real short timer effect where once he knew he was leaving, the job didn't bother him so much. And did he was help, on his way it, to something new. Did it help you? Oh, did it help me? Yeah. Um, the first two or three times, no. I was concerned. And then when he wanted to stop medicine, I think it was when I finally said, you know, I give up. This just isn't the Ozzy and Harriet life mm-hmm. that I had expected, but it's kind of fun because we get to go all these different places. <laughs> and at the time, I only the only skill I had was I'd worked in sales when he was in medical school for an employment company, and they had a very good training on how it was employer-paid fee. So I'd learned how to sell a fee, how to talk to clients, how to interview clients, how to find them jobs through job development. And I loved doing job placement for mm-hmm. them. I did not like working on commission, but I liked that part. So that funny little job that I got right out of college because there wasn't a big market for French majors. <laughs> and so I had to go to work in business. 
And that helped me through all these moves because each time we moved, I already knew how to interview. I knew how to find work. Mm -hmm. I knew the right thing to say at the right time. So the moving, I think, probably helped Chuck have hope. And after, I don't know, by the time we left Utah, I had figured out we weren't ever going to live anywhere all that long. Mm -hmm. And I'd accepted that. And so it was kind of fun to move and go somewhere new and start a new job, have new friends, new churches. I was probably in denial a lot, but at that point, that was very um, protective mechanism, I suspect, rather than just shooting him. (laughs) (laughs) Carol Sprague is our guest today on the Stigma Free Vet Zone podcast. She is the wife of Chuck Sprague, we met in an earlier segment here on the podcast. We're discussing Carol's recollections as well as her description of the challenges and the emotions associated with being the significant other of a veteran, and in this case, one who saw extensive combat. The intervening years then, when Chuck has now become a psychiatrist for the VA and you've made additional moves, et cetera, what were these emotional strains? What is the status of that as Chuck become more expressive to you? And is there some hope entering the picture here, maybe some reconciliation, et cetera? There was a lot of hope after he went into psychiatry Mm -hmm. because part of his residency was through the VA. So he had Loma Linda University as half of his residency and the other half was the VA. And in his training, he worked with a lot of vets and he ran groups with vets with experienced psychiatrists. And then, of course, he was very skilled at talking to the vets, and he had good counseling skills actually before he ever went into psychiatry because we'd both taken a class in um, communication and like Rogerian therapy type communication. So he had really good interview skills and, and good therapeutic skills before he ever actually started the medical training for psychiatry. So there was a lot of reconciliation there. And one thing that he did a lot was because with the VA, he actually went on to be the psychiatrist for the day hospital. And that was a a very closed group, an intimate group that met every day. And so Chuck brought me and I was working for a vocational rehab firm at the time. And he would bring me into his sessions to do job-seeking skills, or we did resumes for the guys. And so we had a lot of interaction between the vets and me and Chuck, and then he told me a lot of stories in between, and that all came out very, you know, over time, the significance as he worked through what he was feeling, he would come home and we would talk about it too. So at that time, and, and once he went into psychiatry, we continued to move some. <laughs> but by that time, the good news was he worked for the VA. And so all of his benefits, his vacation time, his medical benefits, all of that, that was no longer an issue, which was freeing for me, of course, because then I didn't have to worry about how much I was going to make. I wasn't supporting us anymore. And so I could take a job because I wanted to do the job as opposed to because I needed to have a certain amount of money. And that's where I saw the difference between me and other vets' lives in that sometimes when their husbands were going through this, 
I can't work, I can't think, I can't do what I need to do. There were the money constraints. So we were very lucky that we lived frugally while he was a resident and and we were able to move freely. After a while, it got so that I became an expert in packing and unpacking. So, <laughs> I don't know. It's a, you know, I was thinking last night when Chuck said, had, when Chuck had said, would you talk about how you felt during that time? And I thought, no, mm-hmm. oh, which of the 24 moves do, do we start mm-hmm. with? <laughs> I'd say the, you know, so that was, we've definitely reconciled. The best thing for Chuck, when he was when we lived in Grand Island and he was at the VA in Grand Island, there was quite a shift in administration, and it seemed like that was when his PTSD would would get worse. Was when mm-hmm. administration would say you've got to have more social security numbers. You mm-hmm. can't spend an hour with every client. You have to do 15 minute interviews. Uh, they would try to impose their way of practicing psychiatry on him. And he was such a a support for the vets. He really didn't like seeing them treated badly. And sometimes the administration didn't look at it as treating him badly. They looked at it as having to keep their numbers up for the Mm higher-ups. And and that's sad. That was sad. But finally, when Chuck, when we were in Grand Island, he had several good bosses, and then the good boss would move on, and a bad boss would move in. Mm-hmm. And who knew who was bad and who wasn't? I gave up trying to figure it out. Mm-hmm. I, frankly, I just said, I have my own life. I come home. We have a lovely time. We eat dinner. We live in a nice place. We bought a lake house in, in Nebraska. Mm-hmm. And so he would come, and we would sit on the swing, and, and we would talk about the day. So I was in social services by that time. Mm-hmm. I got my master's in counseling, and and we would staff cases, and he learned, a, he taught me a lot about dealing with borderline personality disorders and alcoholics and and nice people who are very depressed, mm-hmm. so it was a good match. Um, and, and clearly different from the time that he came home and confided in you that he was wondering about the uh, effects of driving into the train. Yes, yes. I would imagine that from that point, which illustrates to me. That was 10 years would, into our marriage. Yeah, I would, and it, and it mm-hmm. would seem to be a, a, just a, a low point when it comes to the fear of the unknown on, on, on your behalf, not really wondering about the person that you love and you're married to. And put that alongside where you were in these later years, it appears there was a great deal of, of change that occurred. There was continuous change in Chuck and in me. Mm-hmm. We both, we, we always laugh. We say we raised each other because we met when we were 16. We were we participated very closely in each other's families. We lived three miles apart in high school or in college, I think. So it was what I see that differed when we went to reunions, what I could see in the difference between Chuck's recovery and some of the other guys that came to the reunion mm-hmm. Vets that had been married before in a stable relationship that came home, if they had a wife who was fairly independent and could work and be her own person, that worked better than a person that came home and the wife wanted to be the traditional wife and have children right away and and work through that. From the reunion guys, there was one guy that there was about 10 guys, two guys had wives who had stuck it out with them over the over the years before the reunion 
and the rest were divorced or one actually committed suicide the following year at the reunion. So it's so different, but if, uh, you know, when the biggest thing that helped us, I think, was when we realized that the the therapist that Chuck was going to wasn't the only therapist. I think it's so important for people with depression and, and with trauma to realize that not every therapist is a good fit, and there's mm-hmm. no shame in changing therapists. There's no shame in saying, you know, this isn't a good fit. And I think it's a probably a good idea not to doubt your own gut. And that's what we did in the in the beginning. I didn't want to sabotage Chuck's therapy, so I didn't say anything. Later on, after going through, you know, after becoming a counselor myself and doing our, my internships and stuff, I realized that particular therapist was a jerk. He mm-hmm. never should have told Chuck it was my fault, you know, <laughs> <laughs> which Fortunately, I was smart enough to know the therapist was wrong, but I didn't want to. So I think, you know, the journey, I I guess I would encourage any spouse, as long as there's not physical abuse, Mm -hmm. to get therapy, get friends, get into communication classes. It's something where I realized very quickly that I couldn't change Chuck, Mm -hmm. that I would have to either cope or get out. And I didn't want to get out. I loved Chuck very much. And so it was a time where we both had to sit down and say, you know, this is how we're feeling. We, st- we still grouse and grumble at one another. <laughs> We've been married 52 <laughs> years now. So. Yeah, that's remarkable. And, and today, and clearly, you are soulmates. We are, yeah, and always were. And I guess when I said my mother, when we were fighting in high school, and my mother would say, I don't know why you're breaking up with him. I know you love him. She was right. Mm -hmm. I just didn't know. We met, we always laugh. We said we met each other probably about eight years too soon. Because had I met Chuck when I was graduating from college, it would have been a very different relationship, I think. But because we were kids, we just grew up together. So we raised each other. Mm-hmm. This was good. Interesting yeah. way to put it. Yeah. And we have a lot of respect. I love Chuck's brain. He's so curious and he, he's into music and he's into, and he's the only, he was the only man I ever dated who was as into classical literature and poetry as I was. (laughs) (laughs) I was a French lit major and he was very jealous of my course curriculum because all I did through college was read French novels and French lit. And, but Chuck took, classes in Tolstoy and chorus while he was in college. He was struggling through PCAM, but also he'd take a class in Tolstoy and a class mm-hmm. in, and he, he was always in the chorus. So <laughs> uh, we had so much in common of having grown up as agricultural kids and, and also our common values. We were raised in, in liberal homes that were also Christian. Mm-hmm. So we were taught that we was, it was fine to question what was going on. It wasn't appreciated during Vietnam because we both told our parents we thought Vietnam was a crock mm-hmm. and we didn't want anything to do with wrapping ourselves in the flag and marching off <laughs> into the mm-hmm. sunset. Yeah. That caused some family rows. <laughs> can imagine. <laughs> As it does today, that's actually, see, with today's politics, it, it just feels so similar. Mm-hmm. You've answered my questions, Carol, but I want to offer you the opportunity. Is there anything I didn't ask, or for that matter, that you just want to add in 
or otherwise mentioned, please feel free to do that. I think the one thing, thank you. I, I think the one thing I would really encourage if other vets or vets' wives are listening to these podcasts, which I think are brilliant, it would have been very useful to have had something like this when we were going through it since we weren't in the military and there weren't military options or other wives around. Definitely seek counseling, hold on to your friends that are, that you don't have to have a degree to be a counselor. But find somebody that you can talk to and that the two of you can talk to. And I'd highly suggest take classes in communication, you know, the effectiveness training, the management effectiveness training, the parent effectiveness, love and logic. All of those things teach you how to communicate with each other without shaming and blaming, which when someone's depressed, that's kind of what comes out. And so I'd really encourage people not to give up to get the counseling or, or to find somebody and read everything you can think of to help with communication. I think that's the key is, is talking to one another. Well, that's a wonderful statement. Our guest today on the Stigma Free Vet Zone podcast is Carol Sprague. Carol, thanks for sharing not only so much about your life with Chuck before and during and after his service as a Navy corpsman for the 3rd Marine Division, but also the other asides and anecdotes throughout our conversation and just the wonderful recall of the experiences of a litany of different locations where you lived and Chuck's experiences as a psychiatrist in the VA medical system. It was just wonderful to speak with you. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Bob. And thanks, too, to our recording engineer, Iris. This is Bob Bach. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for listening to the Stigma Free Vet Zone podcast. Your feedback is always welcomed and encouraged. You'll find contact information on our webpage, OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org. Our program is produced by Blueberry Pro Productions. On behalf of Michael Orban, this is Bob Bach. Thanks for joining us, and please tune in again.